What's wrong, Jeremiah? It's not fair. My brother Joseph has a sin to confess. I wish I had one, too. Oh, don't you see? You do have a sin to confess. The sin of envy. <laughs> I recorded a whole take of this yesterday and listened back and just decided to chuck the whole thing out. I just feel really weird talking about this topic for some reason. Um, but I'm going to try. I'm going to see if I can do a new version today and hopefully I won't sound quite so tense. <laughs> we'll see how we go. <laughs> so um, I got some really nice feedback from the last episode. People loved hearing about my little nephew who I still refer to as Baby William even though he is four and he informs me now that he is not a baby. Um, yeah, that episode in which I tried to unpack what a poet actually is. It seems like people are um, not on the same page when it comes to answering this question, which is pretty interesting to me. And I got feedback from various parts of the spectrum. One take from my friend Jeremy, who I have an ongoing uh, ongoing argument with about whether poetry needs to mean anything. Uh, Jeremy got in touch to say, maybe I'm biased because I'm not in the poetry world like you are. But if you call yourself a poet, then you're a poet. So that's where Jeremy lands on that part of the question. And then he adds, as for how many poems do I have to write to call myself a poet? It doesn't matter. Everyone's expectations of what a poet is will be different and they'll be different to yours. So I guess I guess Jeremy's um, in in this answer to the question, all you have to do is to call yourself a poet and you don't have to write any poems. Now I know that Jeremy is mostly joking, but I actually think there are some people who would agree with you. I think for some people it's just it's a label that you can pick up and slap on yourself like a name tag at a convention and then you're a poet maybe that's okay I don't know we'll see I'll let you know what people think I also had an email from listener Suzanne incidentally uh, Suzanne's book is going to come out in about May from Vagabond Press and it's going to be part of a, a batch of, I think, five books that Vagabond are putting together. I think some or all of them are first collections. And because Vagabond had a, a little bit of trouble with funding this year, um, they are putting together a crowdfunding effort to get these books off the ground. So if you like Vagabond, which I really, really do, they put out some of my favorite books of the last five years. I'll put a link in the show notes. And if you've got a little bit of spare cash, you can throw it their way. But Suzanne said in response to this question of what a poet is, she said, I say I write poetry because I do, but I do not call myself a poet because I feel that's someone who's in touch with some muse that I'm not in touch with, some muse that enables them or their work to speak to others in a visceral way, something that enables their use of words to have an effect beyond words. I totally know what Suzanne is getting at here. I know what that feeling is. But imagine if there was actually a muse. On the one hand, that would be wonderful. 
And on the other hand, that would be really, really unfair because if there was a being who we could make a bargain with or please or pay off in some way in return for being able to write better poems, then the people who could make that deal would get to be talented and write transcendent work that moves people and the rest of us <laughs> just get to keep grinding away. Um, yeah, so there's... It's it's an idea that is tempting, but I think at the end of the day, I don't believe in it. I have to confess that in my more desperate moments, I have turned to books like The Artist's Way by the totally nuts Julia Cameron. Um, one of Julia's exercises in that book, which is just, just wild, um, one of the things she gets you to do is to actually write out a contract with creativity or the spirit of creativity. And what you say in your little contract is, I'll take care of the quantity. So I'll show up to write every day if you take care of the quality. So you outsource how good your writing's going to be. You're not responsible for that. You're only responsible for sitting down and doing the work. And in some ways, that's a nice idea. It's a tempting idea, right? Because you don't have to own how bad your output is. But for me, it doesn't allow enough room for agency. I do want to be in charge of both the quantity and the quality. So while I do know where Suzanne is coming from, I don't think I believe in the muse anymore. I definitely used to. I think now I just believe in cumulative effects. I'm tempted here to say I believe in the grind, but then I don't want to sound like Rachel Hollis telling you to go and wash your face. So not the grind, cumulative effects, writing something, writing something else, the thing that gets you to the next thing and reading a lot. And I say that as somebody who didn't read really anything for the first five years of writing poetry and who still feels a lot of urgency around all the stuff that I want to read and understand and have some idea of where it all fits I have to remind myself a lot of the time that this is a cumulative process it's like making a quilt or something you can't do it all in one day but again I do see where Suzanne is coming from I, I totally know that feeling when you read a poem that really moves you it feels like that poet has access to something that you don't and that leads me to what I want to talk about today something that's been on my mind since I spoke with Matthew. Matthew being Matthew Buckley-Smith, the creator of the very funny and wicked and wonderful podcast, Slee Ricketts, which I had the opportunity to guest on again last week. Uh, I chatted with Matthew about just a fantastic story in The New Yorker called White Noise by a writer called Emma Klein and the 2019 film... Uh, the Assistant by Kitty Green. It's a bit of a discussion of power dynamics between men and women and how that's explored in those two pieces. And I also get really uh, head up about an Anthony Hecht poem. Um, so definitely check that out. I had a lot of fun, as I always do. But one of the things that Matthew said to me when I interviewed him for this podcast was that the only real compliment that one writer can pay another is envy. And that really struck me at the time and it went around in my head for a few days after we had that discussion. 
And a few listeners actually got in touch to say that they agreed with that as well. So I wanted to dig into the question of envy a little further and to try to talk about how it has operated in my own writing life. Um, because I think that Matthew is probably right in that envy is a, it's a really high form of praise. If somebody envies your work, then you must be doing something right. But I also think, and I'm pretty sure Matthew would agree with this, and I think the listeners who got in touch would probably have um, poems in this category as well, I think it's possible to just plain love a poem or the work of a particular poet without wanting what they have. So I'm going to attempt to dig into that and I'm going to talk to you about some of the poets whose work I have envied and then others that I just like a lot that just make me happy. So to define envy, I'm going to go to straight to the source, straight to YouTube. <laughs> the latest video by ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn, is all about envy. If you've never seen ContraPoints, please stop listening to this podcast and go and watch one of her videos. She makes the best stuff on the internet. That's it. There's uh, Your life will be better if you watch one of her videos. It's she's just the greatest and this video on envy is two hours long <laughs> it's so good though it's so bloody good and towards the beginning she she unpacks um the definition she points to aristotle who said envy is pain at the good fortune of others and then she goes on to say it's not just wanting what someone has it's begrudging them what they have. You might even hate the person you envy and want them to lose what they have, to be humiliated and destroyed, even if their downfall doesn't benefit you in any way. Like Satan, who is willing to lose heaven just to spite God, according to the poet John Milfton. It's gonna be 90 minutes of Milf jokes, kids, so strap in. Just to unpack the definition even further, I went to another essay, uh, this time a, a written essay by Antonia Pont, this essay is called The Writer Antonia Pont versus Envy. I don't think Antonia wrote that title, but um, nevertheless. In the essay, Antonia says, Envy always involves some sliver of identification. It's what we can feel without clocking that we're feeling it when we want something that someone else has and when that someone else is someone like us. So that's important, right? You have to feel like the person is similar to you in some way. So she says, we envy the person for the thing they appear to have. We pounce on and worry at the difference between them and us, which instead of being incommensurable difference becomes, due to our general identification with them, difference as lack in us. That's what it feels like, right? When you read a poem that makes you envious, it's this feeling of, I could have done that, but I didn't. So, for me at least, I don't know how this works in, in your life, but for me, envy of other people's work is probably one of the engines that makes the whole thing run for me. It's a motivating factor. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. It's probably not a good thing, but it's true. 
I've got to own it. That is that is something that makes me want to get better, is reading a poem that I feel like I should have written. And I know I'm not the only poet who has ever thought about this because I found a poem by Robert Haas, which is just simply called Envy of Other People's Poems. This is from his collection Time and Materials, Poems 97 to 2005. This book won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, I picked it up thinking, oh yeah, I love Robert Haas, and now I'm reading it thinking, oh no, I don't. (laughs) I'm really not enjoying it. Um, It's very confusing, and a lot of these poems just feel confusing for the sake of it, and actually this this poem, Envy of Other People's Poems, is, even though it's ten lines long, quite confounding, but I'm going to read it and attempt to use it to expand my definition a little further. So, Envy of Other People's Poems. In one version of the legend, the sirens couldn't sing. It was only a sailor's story that they could. So Odysseus, lashed to the mast, was harrowed by a music he didn't hear. Plungings of sea, wind shear, the offshore hunger of the birds, and the mute women gathering kelp for garden mulch, seeing him strain against the cordage, seeing the awful longing in his eyes, are changed forever on their rocky waste of island by their imagination of his imagination of the song they didn't sing. It's quite circular and, as I say, confounding. I think what he's getting at, at least in the first half, is that what you think is genius, what you might think is genius, is only music that you don't hear, plungings of sea, wind shear, the offshore hunger of the birds. So Odysseus imagines hearing something beautiful, but it's just the sounds of what's going on around him, just the sounds of nature. And in this poem, the sirens, not only can't they sing, but they're mute. They can't make any noise at all. And they see Odysseus and they see his awful longing. And then they're changed forever by their imagination of what he's imagining. So everyone's imagining that someone else's experience is more profound or important than their own. I do think there's probably a simpler way to say this. (laughs) I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, every poem in this book has that same pattern of starting out really clear and then just getting um, confusing and circular and strange. Might just need to spend a bit more time with it. I think what that poem is pointing to that is interesting in thinking about envy is you're always envying something imaginary. It's like that saying about comparing your inside to other people's outside, right? Like I might envy a particular poet's success or their ability or even just a particular poem and and wish that I had written it, but I don't know anything about that person's life. And when I'm feeling that, I think I am, going back to what Antonia says, I think I am imagining a lack in myself and comparing myself against what this poet is doing and deciding that I'm deficient in some way. 
So let's get into some examples here. If you've listened this far, then you're clearly interested in this topic and maybe you've felt this way about poems that you've read, books that you've read. Um, so I'm going to share some examples of my own. And yeah, I don't, I'm not proud of this, <laughs> put it that way. I am a little bit embarrassed um, to share these examples, but I also think maybe it's um, it might demystify the experience a little bit because I think everybody feels this way to some degree. I think if you don't, if you've never had this experience, then um, you're probably in the minority, put it that way. I am hesitating a lot in getting to this part of the episode, but I have a couple of examples and I tried to um, stick just to poets who are working today because for me that difference as lack thing only comes into play when I feel like, you know, I, I could have potentially achieved what these people have achieved. So I'm not going to go around feeling envious of um, Keats or Robert Frost or anything like that because they're writing and operating in a completely different world, completely different environment. I always think about C.S. Lewis who described his day um, as he was writing, I think it was Surprised by Joy, and how he would get up and take breakfast and then write for a few hours and then go for a walk in the afternoon, then come home and do a bit of reading by the fire. And, you know, there's no mention in there of um, paying bills or buying groceries or even cooking anything or tidying up or any of the mundanity that can become such a drag on your day like a lot of the writers that it can be tempting to compare yourself to had servants <laughs> so you don't need to feel bad you don't need to feel bad if you don't have that kind of output there's other stuff going on for us so just focusing on real people who are working today um, the first time I really felt this was when I bought a book called Aria which came out from University of Queensland Press, I think in about 2008, 2009. Um, this is a book by the poet Sarah Holland Batt. And I just remember that this is one of the books that used to stare back at me from my shelf as a kind of challenge. Because the fact is that it's a highly accomplished collection. Uh, I think it was Sarah's first collection. I just couldn't get my head around the fact that somebody my age, this was in, in my late 20s, somehow I, I realized or found out that Sarah was the exact same age as me. And this book came out when we were both in our mid to late 20s. And I just couldn't understand how somebody, somebody my age could have written a book like this. It just... It was such a shock. Reading it made me realize that I had a lot more work to do and I needed to start taking this a little bit more seriously and stop sitting around thinking that poetry was just going to happen to me because there were people out there like Sarah who were working really hard <laughs> and making it happen. And yeah, I was falling behind. This was, you know, I'd, I'd barely started and I guess when I encountered this book I realised that I had already fallen um, really far behind. So 
Yeah, I still have that book and it still stares at me from the shelf. Similar example was a poem called Growing a Bear by Hannah Gamble. This came out, um, I think it was 2016, and one of my early Poetry Says episodes was about this poem. I really love this poem. It's quiet. It's a very lonely, frustrated poem from the point of view of a man who's in, I guess, a loveless marriage, or he's at least distant from his wife. He's distant from everyone in his world, and he has this idea that he's going to grow a bear in a bathtub, (laughs) which is a weird idea. And, of course, the bear stands in for something else, which Hannah Gamble never really unpacks, but she, she definitely doesn't need to. It's just a really effective, affecting poem. And again, I, lo- I read it, I loved it, and then I realised that Hannah Gamble, uh, at this point I'm in my early 30s, and I realised that Hannah Gamble's in her early 20s, I think, and yeah, that comparison, that difference as lack kicked into to high gear at that point. I was just like, oh, I've fallen even further behind. <laughs> I... I I couldn't write this poem. I don't think I could write this poem now, but I felt something in me felt that I should have been able to. I wanted to have been able to. I wanted to have written it. And it's become one of those poems that I've thought about the effect, like Suzanne was saying, the effect it had on me. I want to have that effect on a reader one day, somehow. So yes, there was quite a bit of obsessing over that and thinking way too hard about how the hell Hannah Gamble had done this at such a young age. Yeah, just just that horrible comparison brain. Really, really unhealthy. Another poem that just clicked with me the minute I read it, it's a poem called Sons by the Melbourne poet Tim Wright and it's the title poem of a collection that came out a couple of years ago now. It's a long, layered poem, which is many, many different descriptions of sons, S-U-N-S. It's a simple idea. It's incredibly well executed. As I said, it's very quiet and beautiful and strangely moving, even though the language is weird. And um, I almost think it might be a found poem, or at least parts of it might be found and mashed together. It's the kind of poem that probably shouldn't work and then it it just does it brings together these images that yeah really really worked on me and at the time I can remember saying to another poet oh this book is incredible this this son's book and she said to me oh you should write a review about it and I thought absolutely I'm not going to do that (laughs) because I I did not feel equipped and I I felt envious of it. I, I wanted to have written a poem like that. And then just recently I came across a poem in Mianjin by Toby Fitch called Moons, which is a tribute to Sons. And then I felt even more envious because not only had I not written the first poem, but I had not thought about writing in response to it. That idea just hadn't occurred to me. And then Toby had, I guess, kind of claimed that space. It's a strange thing to be 
envious of, but I guess I was envious that um, I no longer was number one fan of this poem. Yeah, it's, it's a strange way of thinking about creativity, isn't it? It's, it's very unflattering. But I think the feeling that was common to all these three experiences is, I wish I'd thought of that. I wish I'd done that. And now it's done and I can't go back and do it. I've missed my chance, I guess, is the feeling. By comparison, I have many examples of poets whose work I admire, but I don't envy. I don't feel that I lack what they have. I don't feel that comparison. And so these are poets and poems that just make me happy in a very simple and straightforward way. Again, I'm trying to to limit it just to poets working today because otherwise we'll be here forever. One of my go-to poems when somebody says, where should I start, is a poem called Praise Song by Nate Marshall. And the reason I point people to this poem is it's quite simple and straightforward um, and there's a really great reading of the poem by Nate that you can listen to as you're reading it. It's a story of a drunken night and a fight with friends. There's punches are thrown, um, there's blood, (laughs) but everything that is included in the poem is praised. It starts out, praise the Hennessy, the brown shine, the dull burn. And again, if you listen to Nate read it, I think it just, it really works on you. It's very, it's very persuasive and beautiful and comforting, even though it is about a pretty, what sounds like a pretty awful experience. And yeah, that's one of the poems that I just sort of keep with me as a bit of a touchstone, but I don't feel any sense of, I should have written that. I I couldn't have, I don't have experiences like that. And I don't, it's not a poem that I imagine I ever could have written. It just makes me happy second poem I thought of when I was trying to come up with my top three here was a poem by the writer Ursula Robinson Shaw, who's one third of the Sick Leave Collective down here in Melbourne. And Ursula has this poem from her chapbook Noonday called Sonnet for the Good Meat. And I was lucky enough to launch my chapbook alongside Ursula and two other writers And so I got to hear her do this poem for audiences a couple of times. And it is so fun. It is amazing to watch her deliver this poem and not only win the audience over, but just melt them. They just, they laugh and they just fall in love with with her and with the poem. And it's just hilarious. It's silly and funny and strangely violent she's kind of the speaker sort of sounds almost like a dominatrix or something like that uh it's it's a wild and crazy poem that I again I I don't feel like I should have written it I don't feel like I could have even come close to writing something like it it's 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 very free um Ursula's writing has a, a freedom and a I feel like when she writes, she lets go in a way that I don't 
feel like I've ever been able to. And there's just a joy in that. There's, yeah, it's just a, a pure pleasure to listen to this poem. And the other poems from the book, Noonday is just a, a wild and, and fantastic ride. So that goes on my list of just pure admiration. And then the last one I wanted to talk about just briefly is a poem from Pam Brown's latest collection. Her book has just come out from Hunter. It's called Stasis Shuffle. And the second poem in it is just called Canberra Drains. And as a longtime Canberran, I guess I should be envious of this because I think it's the perfect Canberra poem. I don't think anyone's ever going to write a poem that captures what Canberra looks and feels like in the way that Pam has done in this poem. But it will be insane for me to envy Pam Brown. (laughs) There's, There's no comparison there. That's totally nuts. That's completely nuts. She is, what can you even say? She's We don't have a Poet Laureate, but in my mind, Pam is it. And so I'm just happy that this poem exists and thinking about how to approach it maybe in a future episode because, yeah, I just want, I want to try to figure out how it works and why it works so, so well. But there's no envy there, just happiness and excitement too, excitement that This book is going to gradually make its way through the reading world and other people are going to discover it. If you've read it and you've got um, thoughts, let me know. But I don't say any of that to discount how paralyzing envy can be. The way we feel about someone else's work can motivate you, but it can also stop you. It can be the thing that makes you throw up your hands and go, well, they've already done it and I'll never be that good, so that's it. I'm done. I came across an interesting example of this in an essay by none other than Donald Hall, uh, Jane Kenyon's partner of many years. I was just generally grumpy um, towards Donald Hall because I had this idea that as Jane's teacher who ended up uh, getting together with her and taking her away to his family farm that he was this kind of I don't know, almost like a creepy presence in her life. But um, reading this essay, and he also has another beautiful essay called The Third Thing, which is another window into their writing life. But yeah, this essay, The Poetry of Death, which Donald wrote after Jane died, in it he talks a bit about what it was like to live with Jane Kenyon and to write alongside her. And he doesn't go so far as to say that he envied her, but he does share that basically her ability stopped him from writing or by his measure it made his work worse so I'll just read this little passage where he says as Jane moved from glory to glory the language of my poems began to diverge from hers in one lengthy collection my lines became more ironic and more ingenious in structure a subsequent still weaker book collected brief, plain poems of anecdotal reminiscence. It appeared just after Jane died, and a compassionate reviewer attributed its failure to my anguish. Over the years I've come to understand how or why my poems altered and deteriorated, 
Working beside her, I felt overwhelmed as I read Let Evening Come, and briefly it enters. I admired the embodiment of her struggle with depression in having it out with melancholy. I remember when she handed me twilight after haying, one summer after a neighbouring farmer finished cutting our fields. These devastating enactments of Jane's art became daily events. The emotional abundance of her language climbed to the summit of literary achievement, the pupil exceeding her teacher, and I made my poems as unlike Jane's as I could manage. It's a really great essay. <laughs> so I, I forgave Donald after that for whatever it was I thought he did wrong. Um, to finish, I want to share a poem that's about friendship and admiration between poets, because while envy can be energizing and motivating, I think friendship is better. This is a poem by Gwen Harwood, who I've only just started reading, and I am having quite a bit of trouble um, getting into. I think I need a bit of help, and I have some people in mind who I'm going to ask to help me unpack Gwen's body of work. A lot of the poems in this um, selected are to other people. I think a lot of them are to other poets. And this one is just called To A.D. Hope. A.D. Hope being one of those leading lights of 20th century Australian poetry that I also have not approached and don't know how to get into. <laughs> All I know about A.D. Hope is that at ANU, the lecture hall where you have all your lectures uh, in first year is called the A.D. Hope Building. So I used to meet people at A.D. Hope. That's, that's really all I have on him. But this poem makes him quite a bit more human. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what it's like to kind of fall in love with another poet in a way. So, to A.D. Hope. I remember well that evening years ago. A woman glittering with rhinestones sighed. Professor Hope, how wonderful to know a poet in the flesh. As you replied, well, I am usually present there. A spark of irresponsible delight flickered between us through the smoky air. Over the glossy small talk of that night, you skimmed and shimmered with a dragonfly lightness of conversation. While you stood solidly present, beaming eye to eye at those who filled your glass or brought you food. Glücklicher Dichter poet as smiling man. We talked in snatches through the smooth, time-killing talk about art, friendship no older than an hour, with absolute acceptance filling old absent hours. The same ridiculous thought, that the bardic robes assumed ideally right might be tattered, had occurred to us, hard-working aspirants, perhaps, but really like Martin Tupper or Eliza Cook, who I also had no idea about. I looked them up. Both English poets, um, Martin Tupper was a philosopher, Eliza Cook was an early feminist reformer. So there you go. We spoke of early childhood, memories, dreams. You told me of one dream in which you took your place before an orchestra, and themes sprang instantly from your composing mind into the belly of each instrument. Players obedient to no score combined while you beat time composing as you went to realise your changing harmonies. Dream, parable, the marvellous translation of thought to act, 
light that the spirit sees flashing through its material creation. She gets a bit biblical in this next bit and I'm not 100% sure where she's going, but stick with me. Thought shaping with serene authority, the world of sense, a happy dream indeed. Was it perhaps what Adam lost when he and his free-thinking partner felt the need for some good salty angst and left the air of paradise forever? with the black hangdogs of melancholy and despair, sniffing and sniveling round them on the track to bodily extinction. Word and thing no longer one. The running dialogue of flesh and spirit failing at the spring. Horizons shrouded in a shifting fog of doubt. The world, the case, the what is given. Life's opera. Death's horror movie show. The nagging memory of a long lost heaven. Imperial Adam's gift. All this we know. But who would call his primal state a blessing? Who would not bite the fruit and bear the change? How could the heart, in an unprepossessing coma of innocence, have shown its range? Who in full manhood would remain sincerely a child, in a child's Eden, and as dumb? And who on earth would sing, if song were merely an effortless warbling, until kingdom come? Poet as hero, nobly present in the flesh, now half a continent away. Friend at whose triumphs won and still to win, I'll stand rejoicing. Though I cannot say all that I owe, I grapple through the same night watches with self-doubt, suffer the long torment of waiting for a word to name grief that must be resolved in healing song. Accept my praise for the true fables of your speaking tongue for the heart celebrating its solemn happiness in human love. Most for the elected spirit recreating from dream and darkness through your images, the wing flash of a joy that is no dream. Dragonfly light, a moment motionless, brighter than daylight on the blazing stream. <laughs> 